You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So basically what happened was we were having people over for New Year's Eve. This is Janet Feldman. She's remembering a party she threw to ring in 2008. While she was setting up, I moved a table, a heavy table, and I said to my husband, there's something wrong with my underarm. Janet was a new mom, so she thought it might be mastitis, an inflammation that can crop up when you breastfeed. She went in for a scan. And the guy said to me, who's he with you? And I thought, okay, this is not great. There's going to be something very wrong here. And I said, just tell me, I'd rather just know. And he said, there's a huge lump of about seven to eight centimetres in the side of your breast and another one of about four centimetres in your underarm and maybe more. He sent her to a specialist in Melbourne, Australia, about an hour's drive from her suburb. This time, Janet took her mom along because the specialist was going to tell her if the lumps were cancerous or not. He said, it's bad news, exactly like that. It's breast cancer, it's in two places. I remember thinking, I'm glad the chair has handles because I think I'm going to fall off the chair. And the funny thing is afterwards, my mum was saying to me that she was just thinking to herself, don't fall off the chair, just don't fall off the chair. Once it sunk in, Janet had to figure out what to do next, how to get cancer treatment. She had two choices. Australia has a private insurance system, one you have to pay to be a part of, a little like our system here in the U.S. And it has a public insurance system, one that's free for everyone. Janet had been paying fees every year to be part of the private insurance system. So to me, thinking like an American, going private seemed like the natural choice. If you're paying for something, it should be better, right? Better doctors, better facilities. A decade ago, Janet's mom had the same assumption. So she asked the doctor which private hospital he'd recommend. He said, no, no, he said, listen to me. He said, you're going to stay public. From the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is The Impact. I'm Jillian Weinberger. Today on the show, Vox's healthcare reporter, Dylan Scott, tackles an Australian mystery. Why, why would it be better for a patient like Janet to use the public system that she has access to for free instead of the private system that she is paying for? Dylan's been traveling around the world to see how other countries tackle healthcare. Last episode, he took us to Taiwan, where the government covers every citizen under one big public program. In the United States, some presidential candidates are pitching a similar plan, Medicare for all. Others have a different idea. Provide a public option, meaning every single person in America would be able to buy an option if they didn't like their employer plan, or if they're on Medicaid, they'd automatically be in the plan. That's the concept of my Medicare for all who want it proposal. Candidates like Buttigieg and Biden do want a government insurance option to make sure everyone has affordable coverage. 
but they also want to keep our private insurance system around. It's a model that looks a lot like the Australian setup, which means that the answer to Janet's Australian mystery could give us some clues about the future of healthcare here at home. Here's Dylan Scott. When I got to Australia, I figured the best way to understand why people are so ready to use public health care is to understand the difference between private health care and public health care. So my producer Bird and I decided to go to two hospitals in Melbourne, one private and one public. I expected the private option to be much fancier than the public. And Epworth, the private hospital we visited, was definitely fancy. We got like a lot of rounded edges. Yeah. It felt like being inside of an Apple product. Sleek white lines. We met up with John Cunningham, a spinal surgeon. Yeah, that microphone is really intimidating. We quickly realized that John is a good guide to hospital life. He teaches lots of med students, and he loves to show, not tell. It's become a standard kind of thing, you know, that you open up the chest, and then I get the student's hand, and you put their hand inside someone's chest. And then all of a sudden it's like, <gasps> you know, like I can feel their heart. It's like, yes, there's their heart. And... It's good fun, you know? We asked John to walk us through the main differences between a public and a private hospital. He says most of his private hospital patients come in for elective surgeries, stuff they've planned for. So they've had a long time to talk through every step of the process with John. They know what's going to happen. They know what to expect. He starts to talk about the differences in his operating room, Uh, but then John decides to show, not tell. If you, uh, I don't know, if you want to, you could come around and have a look. Uh, We would love to. (laughs) We put on scrubs, hair covers, shoe covers. This is the only place in the world where you'll ever see me wear Crocs. Thank God it's radio. So this is my theater. There's a patient, face down and anonymous on the operating table. John's surgical team is bustling around. There are lots of screens and machines showing all kinds of numbers and colors. This machine that you see over there, 7D Surgical, that's almost brand new. That's so cool. Yeah. We continue on our tour of the private hospital. So this is one of our robots. It's a Da Vinci XI. I feel like I understand what people are paying for. High-tech gadgets. There's a gourmet kitchen. This is like patisserie-level dessert. In the pediatric unit, there's a Finding Nemo-themed aquarium. This boxy robot scoots by us in the hallway. It's called a tug, and it carries used materials around the private hospital so that humans don't have to. Tug has a face and a little pencil-thin mustache. So this is the emergency department. Even the emergency department is swanky. They have warm blankets next to the ambulances to keep patients from getting cold. They have a fancy CT scanner in the ER itself. And there are these special sealable rooms. The deputy director of the ER tugs a door shut for us. Okay, and look how quiet this is. The ER at the public hospital is less quiet. There's this board announcing that multiple ambulances are on the way, two with high-level trauma patients. This is like we're constantly ducking out of the way. There's like, you know, three stretchers behind us, people waiting to find a room. Like, it's, it's just busier. But as we were walking along, our tour guide pointed out something in passing. I was surprised. That meant that the public hospital also has a CT scanner in its ER, just like the private. As we walked through the rest of the building, I saw more familiar things, like the public hospital has a tug machine, carrying its used equipment to and fro. They even have John, our show-don't-tell spinal surgeon, a couple days a week. So I guess, you know, I've got a foot in both camps in some ways. 
The more I saw, the more I realized that this public hospital is not so different from the private one. It's got fewer bells and whistles, like there are no warming blankets in the ER, for example. And for non-urgent surgeries, it does have longer wait times. But you're not necessarily making a big technological sacrifice if you choose to go public. And studies suggest that you're getting the same quality of care. It was starting to seem less strange to me that Janet's cancer doctor was like, Janet, I know you're paying for private insurance, but you're really going to want to use the public system for your care. The more we got on in treatment, the more we realized that he was 100% right. Back in 2008, Janet started her cancer treatment at a public hospital in the city. She'd been told what to expect. But nothing compares to somebody actually sticking a needle of poison into your body and you having to do it or you're going to die. I remember afterwards we went into the cafe and there were all these bald people in the cafe and I said, let's get out of here. I don't want to look at the bald people anymore. And then I was one of the bald people. So, (laughs) yes, I got over it. (laughs) This has been a really tough decade for Janet. But at the public hospital, the experience has been at least less unpleasant than it might have been. The good thing about that hospital is that there's every single thing a a cancer patient might need within one building. Psychologists and nutritionists and chemo and surgery and everything within the same place. And the least unpleasant part of it was the bill. I know people who've had breast cancer treatment at private hospitals and they pay for this and they pay for that. They pay each time. The private insurance system in Australia works kind of like ours. The insurance company covers some things, but patients pay for others or the patients pay a gap between what's covered and what's not. In the public system, though, Janet does have to pay a small cost for her meds, but her treatments and her nutritionists and her physical therapists and her psychologists, all of them are free. I remember one day I looked up at the chemo bag and it had a price on it, and it was close to $6,000 for, that was once and I had it every three weeks. And I just thought, you know, I see people in the news and women who are going through treatment where their medication is not covered by Medicare. And I just think, how do you do it? Your whole life becomes about affording the medication or you will die, finished. Like there's no middle ground for them. Some public patients do have to cover more costs than Janet does. But according to one report, if breast cancer patients use private insurance, they pay twice as much on average. It is still tough. Janet's cancer has come back four different times over the last decade. It spread to her brain. I remember one day sitting in my car after receiving, I think it was my second or my third diagnosis, and I just remember kind of giving up, kind of thinking, oh, this is it. Like, I'm done now, and... I've got this baby and a little boy, and how am I going to do this? And I was really upset. But because she doesn't have to worry about money, she can focus on managing her emotions. There are definitely things that we do that, like even as far as going away for a weekend, sometimes we just need to get away. Whereas if I was paying huge amounts of money, I don't know if I would be able to do that, like even spend the money with knowing that there's all those costs there. All of this begs the question, if public insurance is such a good option and so much cheaper, why buy private insurance at all? That's after the break.
Welcome back. Bird and I traveled to Australia to figure out why patients are paying for private health insurance when the public option is so good. We found two reasons. First, there are things that Australian private insurance can do that the public insurance can't. And second, the government is doing a lot to push people towards private coverage. Let's start with that first part, things private insurance can do that the public insurance can't. We'll tell you the tale of two sisters. So we've, um, yeah, we've come yeah, as, as twins. Um, Madeline Campbell and Eloise Shepard aren't twins, but they do have matching black hair. They finish each other's thoughts, and without planning on it, they dress for our interview in matching outfits. Hers is navy and mine's kind of a sort of terracotta colour. They even have matching babies, just a few months apart in age, who you'll hear throughout the interview. Eloise has Herbie. He's got clothes on, but Mabel's just come in her nappy this afternoon. So clearly they have a lot in common. But Madeline and Eloise are actually very different. Madeline reminds me of the world of the Madeline storybooks. In an old house in Paris that was covered with vines, lived 12 little girls in two straight lines. I like to know what's happening and I like things to be organized and orderly. In two straight lines, they broke their bread. She's ordered and... (laughs) I'm not going to say buzzy. (laughs) But I just did. (laughs) Now, if I were to make a children's book comparison for Madeline's sister... Australian Eloise has a little more of a uh, chaotic vibe. I have my very own room, which I keep rather a mess. Because All of this translates into the sisters' healthcare choices. Madeline likes order. I like to know what to expect. Yeah. While Eloise is fine with some chaos. Yeah, I mean, I trust in the system, I guess. And their two different attitudes led them to make two different choices about insurance for their pregnancies. Lucy Goosey Eloise has had three kids. And for her first... We went to Bali for my 30th birthday and I felt a bit tired and something in my mind just said, why don't you do a pregnancy test? Took the test and it was positive and I nearly fell off the toilet. (laughs) Um, And I messaged Ben and said, oh, I've got a surprise for you. And he thought it was a six pack of, what's the Bali beer? Oh, I can't even remember. No, oh, the Bintang. Bintang. <laughs> I thought it was a six-pack of Bintang. He's like, yes, Bintang. And I gave him the pea stick. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is, this is a child. <laughs> <laughs> Eloise Googled around, and she decided to have this first baby, Ted, using the public insurance. And later, she had her sons Ernie and Herbie at the public hospitals, too. Each time, there was some element of chaos, like... When Eloise was recovering after Ernie's birth, she shared a room with three other new mothers. One of them stayed up all night. So she'd just Skype all her friends and family all night because they were, I don't know, I think maybe from Brazil, not a lot of privacy. And the staff were wonderful, but they were incredibly busy. Um, So even just trying to get discharged was a challenge, just trying to get him weighed and measured and, yeah. But... Did it cost any money? The, you mean the delivery? No. No. Whereas a private delivery can run you several thousand dollars. We just felt that the money that we would have spent on that we can allocate elsewhere on, well, food for three boys. <laughs> Eloise's sister Madeline, meanwhile, has had one kid. 
When she found out she was pregnant, she had to make her own decision, private or public. At that point, her sister Eloise had had two healthy babies in the public system, two babies that she hadn't had to pay for. But Madeline was gravitating more and more towards the private system. In private care, she thought, she would have more control. So in the private system, you have your own, so I had my obstetrician, and he has his receptionist who's worked with him for many, many years. He's got his own midwife. You know, I was always able to make appointments that were suitable for my time. The ability to go in whenever was especially helpful one day around 30 weeks in. Madeline needed a booster shot unrelated to her pregnancy, so she went to a different doctor. But while she was there, that doctor offered to check for a baby's heartbeat. I think I must have been there for 10 minutes, just <laughs> tears just down the side of my face, and she's just sort of going, um, should I keep looking? <laughs> and I just said, no, I'm just going to call my obstetrician. <laughs> she left, sat in her car, and called her obstetrician. He saw me straight away and obviously found the heartbeat immediately and said, don't ever do that to me again. <laughs> if you are worried, come straight here. When you use private insurance, you have a single person you could call for a same-day appointment. You don't have to wait until some random obstetrician has a free slot in their schedule to check if your fetus is still alive. For some people, that's really important. But for others, it's just not. Eloise arguably had a bigger scare. She got sick with the flu right before giving birth to her third kid. She had to be separated from other patients. All of her doctors were in full body gowns. I had to wear a mask when I was delivering as well, and I lost my sense of smell, and I was really sad that I couldn't inhale that brand new baby. Eloise admits that some continuity of care would have been nice. But that's not to say that I wasn't wonderfully looked after. Um, I was. She does envy some of the bells and whistles of the private system. Her sister Madeline got to go from the hospital to a hotel for a couple nights of recuperation. It was a hotel with chandeliers, the room had a king-size bed. The food was um, was excellent. The food actually at the hospital was very good too. Not so in the public. <laughs> it was slops in a trough, basically. <laughs> when you think of people choosing healthcare in Australia, you can think of them weighing a bunch of different factors. How high is the price? How much do I need to control when I go in for appointments? How many niceties do I want? And even go with the flow, loosey-goosey Eloise has times when she needs to have control. Like when she noticed something strange with her oldest son, Ted. He'd been limping for a while and we thought that he'd pulled a muscle. We went to the doctor and got the tests, the x-ray and the blood test. And then, yeah, we got a call from the doctor saying, can you come in to discuss the results? They went to a family clinic where the doctor sat them down and said, your son has Perthes disease. That meant that Ted's hip bone was crumbling. It could be fixed but Eloise's six-year-old was going to have to be put in a big leg cast for weeks. He'd have to have surgery. He'd have to be in a wheelchair. And then he'd have to learn how to walk again as the bone slowly regrew. And we just sort of left the appointment. We were like, whoa, this is, this is life-changing. During her pregnancies, Eloise had looked at the costs and weighed them against her need for control and decided, yeah, control isn't worth the extra fees. But when it was her kid facing a medical crisis... Eloise didn't want to deal with the long waits in a public system. She didn't want to wait for an available doctor and an available surgery time. I saw a six-month waiting list. That's six extra months where her six-year-old boy wouldn't be able to run and play. And Eloise was worried that the longer they waited, the less well his leg would recover. The fact that we did have the private health insurance meant that 
we could basically say to the surgeon, we want it this date. Whereas if you're in the public system, I think that you would have less control over that. So that is the first part of the reason why people still pay for private insurance, even if they do sometimes opt for the public. When they need control, they have it. And then there's the second part, the government. It creates a big tax nudge towards private insurance. I talked to a guy who knows a lot about it. I regret to say, Dylan, that I've been studying, researching, and working in the health industry for all my life. Stephen Duckett is an Australian health economist. He'll be 70 years old in February. Happy birthday, Stephen. Which means that he was around in the mid-80s when a liberal Australian government set up the public health care model the country has now. If you wanted private insurance, you could buy it, but everyone had access to a public option. Every Australian had universal health insurance. And Australians thought the public health care was great, maybe even too great. People started to drop out of health insurance. Private health insurance. They just started dropping. Australians were increasingly saying, if I'm weighing the costs of private insurance against the bells and whistles and the control, the costs just aren't worth it. I won't go private. And so the rates of insurance uh, declined uh, to about the mid-30-ish uh, percent of the population. In 1996, a new government came in, a more conservative government. They looked at this rapid drop-off in private insurance and said, uh, this is a problem. More than half of non-urgent surgeries happen in the private system. So if the private system collapsed, all those surgeries would be dumped into the public system, and that might overwhelm it. They started to support private health insurance in two important ways. First, in 1997, the conservative government poured money into propping up private insurance. And the government's since have continued to do so. The country now spends about $9 billion Australian dollars a year in subsidies, or about $6 billion U.S. The government also set up a system of penalties. If Australians make good salaries, like Stephen Duckett does, they have to buy private insurance or pay a fine at tax time. And if they're over 30? If you didn't take out health insurance by the time you turned 31, you faced a penalty for every year that you, you had not taken out health insurance. Basically, Australia has, through their tax code, tried to give people with higher incomes an offer they can't refuse. That's absolutely correct. But in the last few years, uh, from about 2015 onwards, Wages have stagnated in Australia. Even with the fines, people are saying, Yeah, we're not getting enough for it. It's just not worth it to buy private insurance. And most importantly, it's the young, healthy people who are making this calculation. So this is causing uh, a vicious cycle. That is, the, the risk pool, the population with health insurance is getting older, which means the costs are going up which means the premiums go up, which means more people drop out of health insurance, which means the risk pool gets worse, and so it goes on. They call that a death spiral in health insurance lingo, don't they? That's exactly right. When Stephen told us private health insurance is heading for a death spiral and something absolutely has to change in our system, we thought it'd be a good idea to talk to somebody in private health insurance. So where are we going? We are going to meet with Dwayne Crombie, who's the Managing Director of Health Insurance at Bupa, which is one of the five largest health insurers in Australia. We assume that Dwayne would tell us we were way off base about the death spiral. 
Um, I think you're pretty much spot on. I think it's the debate's really about the time frame for the death spiral. I mean, nothing's going to die immediately. We call it the slow-boiling frog syndrome. So it might be three years, it might be five years, it might be seven years, but utterly that's what's happening. I want to bring in Mayor Buttigieg on the time. When Pete Buttigieg got up on stage for the second Democratic debate, he talked about Medicare for All. He said, guys, we don't have to have a whole fight about whether Medicare for All is better than our current private-based system. We can put it to the test. Let the two systems compete, Pete said. That's the concept of my Medicare for All who wanted proposal. That way, if people like me are right, that the public alternative is going to be not only more comprehensive, but more affordable than any of the corporate options around there. We'll see Americans walk away from the corporate options into that Medicare option, and it will become Medicare for so all without us having wait, to kick anybody off. So we lost that last little bit in debate talk over. But what Mayor Pete is basically saying is, if public insurance is better, everyone will just switch over. And that is starting to happen in Australia. But it could be a big problem. If everybody goes public, it could completely overwhelm the system. Wait times for important surgeries could be even longer. That said, how much taxpayer money does Australia want to spend on propping up private insurance when it could be used for roads or for schools or for improving public health care? These are hard questions. And if we go with a public-private system here in the U.S., we'll probably have to grapple with them too. This episode was co-reported and produced by Bird Pinkerton. The Impact's editor is Amy Drozdowska. Jared Paul mixed and scored this episode with help from Paul Mounsey. And we had music from Poddington Bear and APM with a theme from Jukebox the Ghost. Thanks to Anne Moffitt, our wonderful photographer, and to Liz Nelson, our editorial director here at Vox. A big thank you to Lauren Katz, Marika Ball-Damberg, and Zach Kahn for all their help with marketing and engagement. And thank you always to Sarah Cliff. This story was made possible through a grant from the Commonwealth Foundation. It's part of a larger set of stories about healthcare, and you can find all of them linked in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, could you please take a moment and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts? It helps other listeners find the show. And please send comments and questions to impact at vox.com or tweet us at hashtag impact podcast. I'm Jillian Weinberger. Talk to you next week.